Good morning. I'm going to read um, Romans 6, 1 through 14, which is the verses that um, Pastor Jacob is going to preach on this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Two thousand years ago, halfway across the world, a revolutionary Jewish teacher was nailed to a cross. Familiar form of Roman execution. With him tongue two other criminals. And as the assembled crowd watched, this teacher named Jesus breathed his last breath. He was removed dead from the cross and buried in the tomb. For the Jewish leaders, this was a relief to get Jesus off their backs. For the followers of Jesus, it was a huge blow as they believed he would be the one to bring the kingdom of God. For the Romans, it was yet another way for them to exert their power over Israel. These are all things we can probably agree on, whether we're Christians or not this morning. Jesus was a real historical figure who died a real death. But when we dig into the Bible a bit further, we see this wasn't just another day on the job for the Romans or just another disappointment for the Jews. Jesus, throughout his 30 years plus on earth, claimed to be not just a good teacher, but the very Son of God. And when he spoke with his disciples about his upcoming death, he would tell them that he would not only die, but he would rise again. Was he a liar? Was he saying that just to pump them up? Well, in the passage Peter read for us earlier from the Gospel of Luke, we see reliable testimony bear witness that that's exactly what happened. Jesus did rise 
again as a son of God. This is why we rejoice this morning as Christians. We rejoice because Jesus wasn't just another teacher, another political revolutionary, but that Jesus came to take our sin on himself and conquer our death in our place. But even for those of us who believe all of that, even for those of us who are Christians this morning, the majority of us, those of us who have heard this story hundreds of times, perhaps all our lives, it can still feel somewhat distant, can't it? I mean, sure, the resurrection happened. It's great. It's wonderful. Jesus defeated death, so we don't have to fear it. He took our sin. But on a daily basis, if we're honest, we just don't think about it that much. We believe in Jesus. We believe he's alive, but we have lives to live stuff to do, shows to watch. What really does the resurrection have to do with us? At 1130-ish on April 21st, 2019, beyond just be like a historical event we think is really awesome. Well, in the passage Carla just read for us, the Apostle Paul lays out how the resurrection is not just that distant fact in the past, but is actually a new reality that every single Christian lives and breathes every moment of their lives. In fact, as one scholar puts it, the resurrection has changed the entire course of history forever. How? What difference does it make? So three things for us to see this morning from Romans chapter 6. First, bondage. Second, death. Third, life. Bondage, death, and life. So bondage, in the context of the letter of Romans, Paul has been making a case up to chapter 6, especially in the last half of chapter 5, that there are two different men who serve as heads of the human race. Two different representatives, leaders of humanity. The first is Adam. The first man God created in the Garden of Eden. Adam was created to glorify God, but when he was tempted by the serpent to doubt God's truth, to set himself up in rebellion against God, he fell into sin, into rebellion. His relationship with God was not only distorted, but it was fractured. And ever since that day, ever since Adam, the whole human race has been in bondage, enslaved, to sin. That is our identity as humans in its most basic form. We are at the mercy of our sin. We do not control ourselves, much as we'd love to convince ourselves that we do. We don't rule ourselves. All it takes is an outburst of anger that we didn't see coming, or that ever-present bitterness about a broken relationship that gnaws at us and we can't forget it. Or, or that jealousy that kind of eats away at us inside to show us that we do not rule our passions, but our passions rule us. We are ruled people. Enslaved to a hunger to try to find some sort of meaning in life apart from our creator. This is called sin, and we are enslaved to it. We're in a state of bondage. And all throughout Romans, Paul explains and kind of lays out what sin is. So in chapter 1, he says, we suppress, we, we push down, 
we attempt to ignore what we know is true. He says every single person knows that there is something to which they are accountable. Call it the law. Call it God. Everyone knows it. And that's why we know there's sort of a difference between doing things virtuously and doing things wrongly. But we also see that we viciously hate that we are accountable. We hate this fact that we have a standard over us, this, this God. We hate this feeling of being supervised and ruled over. And so we push down any thought that there might be a God somewhere to whom we will need to give an account. We explain it away. Our lives are kind of a, a series of evolutionary mechanisms. It's all chance. There can be no God. Paul says that the reason we say that is because we don't want there to be a God. We're lying to ourselves, and this rejection is called sin. Again, in chapter 1, Paul describes sin as dishonoring God, showing ingratitude to the Creator. In chapter 3, he says sinners are those who have no fear of God, who don't really think he has a judgment he can level against us, who think we are our own gods. This is the condition of all who come from Adam. There is no one who is righteous, Paul says in chapter 3. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so while Adam, the first man, lived in a state where he was able to sin but didn't need to, all of us now in Adam are in a state of being where we cannot help but sin. It's our identity. We are unable not to sin. Everything we do can be boiled down to anti-God, pro-self, pro-rebellion against the Creator who made us for His glory. And the scary thing about this state of sinfulness is that we are in bondage to it. We cannot escape it. Look there at the end of verse 6 in Romans 6. See, Paul used those very words. We have at all one point been enslaved to sin. It's our master, and it's a terrible master. Later, at the end of chapter 6, Paul calls the consequences of our sin death. The wages of sin are death. Death forever, eternal death. This is the result of our rebellion against God, the giver of life. The giver of life has given us life, and in our rebellion, then, our punishment is death. In our sin... Death has dominion over us. Death wins the day. Every single man, woman, and child in Adam, which is every single man, woman, and child, is enslaved to sin. There's no hope for the human race in this condition. So this is the kind of argument Paul has been making. One, one scholar describes it like this. He says, one may, well as, one may as well tell a drowning person simply to swim to shore as tell a person who is under sin's mastery not to let sin reign. Our lives are set. So what are we to do? Bondage. It's not getting any prettier. Our next point is death. So in this state of affairs, Paul tells the Christians he's writing to that they have had to die and that they have died. Not physically, but to their old family in Adam, 
to their old system of bondage. They needed a new master. They needed a savior because as slaves, they could not free themselves. And so what Paul is writing this letter to show in all its glory and splendor is that they needed a savior and the savior has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus came to die in our place. He came to bear the death we deserved for our sin. He came to bear our sin on himself so we could be washed clean and forgiven. And Paul is saying that the death of Christ has fundamentally changed who we are. So just as Christ died to atone for our sin, all those who now belong to Christ also have died to sin. There's a new master in town. There's a new Adam leading a new race. So in verse 6, Paul says, our old self, so that that existence we had in Adam's line, enslaved to sin, that old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In that old self, that status in the old family, when Adam was our father, we could not help but sin. But that old status, that old master is no longer We've been purchased by a new master, transferred to a new family, given a new allegiance. Paul is saying that for the Christian, the way to life is through death. The way to life for us is through Jesus' death on our behalf, and the way to life for us is through our death in Christ to our old selves. His death has made a way for us to be freed from bondage to sin. Our bondage is dead. Our bondage is crucified forever. Its power has been crushed. Its punishment has been satisfied. In Christ, for the Christian, our slavery is past tense. See, this is something that I hadn't thought about in these words before this week. The power of the cross was not just to atone for sin, but to defeat sin. To destroy its stronghold on Adam's race. And now there's another man with another family and another race, and his name is Jesus. And all who would be his sons and daughters are free as they live under his righteous rule, taking him as their master. In his service is great freedom and great purpose and great pleasure. Something we only hoped to even taste under the old master. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn we sing often called And Can It Be? And I love how he describes conversion. You remember? He describes it as being liberated from a jail cell. So in the third verse, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. He's, he's calling his old self that one who was bound by shackles in a prison, in darkness with no hope of escape. But then he continues, your eye, God, diffused a quickening ray. It's old-timey language. What he's saying is there's Jesus' 
life came in kind of like a, a ray of light that waked him, woke him up, awakened him. And so what happened? I woke, he writes, the dungeon flamed with light and my chains fell off and my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Jesus, God, was his new master, one who he rose and went forth and followed. For the Christian, the death of Christ on the cross means our sins are atoned for, yes, but also means that the penalty and the power of sin has been conquered. If you're here with us and you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you've come along with a family member or you've come just because it's Easter morning, we're so glad you're with us. It's a, I, I don't say this with any sort of sarcasm. It's a joy and an honor to have you. And maybe you haven't spent a lot of time in church over the years. Maybe you have. Maybe you're in church every Sunday. But you know you don't believe this stuff. If that's you, let me just ask you, do you feel free in your life? When you have your way, when all your desires are met and all your greatest lusts are satisfied, do you find complete joy? Do you find sort of stable meaning that lasts? Pleasure that's constant? To channel Bono, have you ever really gotten what you were looking for? Each one of us is imprisoned by sin. This self-inflicted imprisonment is one we cannot get free from. Sin is our master, and we love it, but we know in our heart of hearts it's not going to satisfy us. Our hearts just yearn for something more, something more lasting, something more legit. I wonder, does your heart yearn for that? Well, your sin, just like our sin, everybody's sin here, is a raised fist in the face of God, and he will justly punish us for this rebellion, and the penalty is death. But if you turn from your sin, if you commit it to the back of Christ on the cross, your punishment will be on him and you will be free. Turn to him today. Only in Christ will you find purpose that lasts if you have questions about that you can talk to somebody who's been up leading music you can talk to me you can talk to somebody sitting next to you we'd love not to preach at you but to explain what has happened in us and what could happen for you and and brothers and sisters in christ christians here this morning church family all this death talk is fine and good that old slavery is gone great awesome but what's next Well, this Easter morning, let's look at one last point. This is really what Paul is getting at. In Christ, we are alive. In Christ, we have life. This is all over this passage, isn't it? Because Jesus has died and rose again, we too have have died to our sin and are now alive to God. The penalty and power of sin has been shattered. So verse 4, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. Verse 5, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. 
Verse 8, we believe we will live with him. Verse 11, consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb. His resurrection on the first day of the week showed he had beaten death. He had come to be the second Adam, the beginning of a new race, the head of those who are no longer enslaved to sin, but sons and daughters of God. And as those in this new family, church, we are free not to sin. That's Paul's Paul's whole argument. I mean, this whole beginning of chapter 6 all came up because as he talked about God's abundant grace and his free gift of salvation, the thought, the crazy thought came up, well, why don't we just keep sinning? I mean, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission, right? And God's so eager to forgive. He should just keep sinning so his forgiveness keeps going. He's saying no. Why would you go back to drinking poison when you've been given the delicious wine of Jesus? Why would you go back to bondage after being set free? And so in light of our union with Christ and how his death and resurrection have changed the course of our lives and the course of the human race, starting a new family of those under the mastery of God himself, Paul does all my work for me and just lays out the application of this truth through our lives. There in verse 11. How should the resurrection apply to our lives right here, right now? He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Live in the new reality of the resurrection, he's saying. Live as those who have died in Christ to sin and now live in Christ to God. This isn't a higher level for those who have been playing the Christian game longer than you. It's not like they've gotten you know, more coins And now they've gotten up to this level where they're actually alive to God. And we hope to get there. This is the new status of all those in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Permanently moved from death to life. So Christian, are you living like that's true? Have you noticed patterns in your life that are different from before you were a Christian? This is the healthy self-image of the Christian. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And Jesus didn't die to give you Another kind of self-image, a better opinion of yourself, better tools to live a better life. He died to beat sin for you, to bring you new life. So do you live in that reality? Or do you play the victim in your sin? Do you live like it still controls you? 
You live at its beck and call. You see that this is not the life you were saved for. You were saved to walk, to habitually live in newness of life. Of course, sin still hangs closely. You can go back this afternoon and read Romans 7, and Paul's going to say, I sin all the time, and it's really hard. You're still going to be beckoned by it. You're still going to find your heart tempted and at times straying. One guy I remember told me just a really great illustration where he's like, you know, you've been switched masters, but you live so long under the old master, his voice is so familiar that when he barks out a command, you instinctively want to obey. But your consistent habit of life, your walk, is now going to be marked by becoming more and more like Jesus, alive in him. So Christian, is that true of you? I mean, do you have battle stories of sin habits you've once had that are now broken? Do you struggle and wrestle in your relationship with Jesus? If you do, be encouraged. You are living out daily the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a historical landmark on the bus tour of Christianity that we stop and take pictures of and post on Facebook. The resurrection is a daily reality for all those in Christ. And church, guess what? The best is yet to come. See, Adam was able to sin and chose to do so. And all of his race... All of us in slavery to sin find we can't help but sin, totally imprisoned by it. Yet now in Christ, we have what we're going to sing in a few moments, a foretaste of deliverance. We're able to actually grow in, in not sinning and fighting it. We're not in bondage anymore. But listen, one day still to come, Jesus will return and we will finally and fully participate in all that his resurrection life means. And in that life, we're no longer going to be able to sin. Completely new. Paul points to that in verse 5. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's just not spiritual talk. That's real talk. It's coming, church. When's the last time you thought about that day? Martin Luther said he had two days marked on his calendar, this day and that day. That means that every day he lived in light of what was coming. A friend of mine I was talking to about this text yesterday, he was talking about how in Christmas and Easter and kind of these church holidays, how we can always kind of look back and rejoice. So the resurrection is always kind of looking back at the empty tomb, and rightfully so. Indeed, we should be focused on that. But the resurrection, Easter Sunday, should just as much be focused on what's yet to come, what we've only had a taste of. The resurrection doesn't just show us something that happened in the past, though it did happen in the past. It doesn't just show us the current resurrection power we now possess, though we do possess it by God's grace. The resurrection promises us new life forever at the coming of Christ when we will be raised up with him.
What a day that will be. And so, dear church, we meet on Sundays because it's the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose again. So every time we meet, not just on Easter, but every single Sunday, let's be reminded as we meet on the first day of the week in the morning that Jesus is alive and that because he is alive, we are not in bondage, but liberated and given this hope that is a living hope that will never fade away that our Savior will return in his glorified body and raise us up to be with him. Let's pray that that day would come soon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've been singing, the scriptures we've been hearing, the prayers we've been praying. Thank you for filling our minds with the glory of the resurrection this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us. That you would help us and you would apply this truth of the power of the resurrection to our daily realities. We tenderly and gently and humbly pray for our brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley who feel enslaved this morning. Lord, help the, this resurrection reality kind of break through for them this Easter morning. And for the rest of us, help us not to grow lazy in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Help us to remember a day is coming when we will see Christ, and it will be worth it all. Keep us until that day, and help it to come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.